Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello everyone, and thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, A Cassus Belly Project. In today's episode, we pick up a thread I left hanging all the way back in episode 13, The Siege of Leningrad. With this episode, I think we will nearly complete our coverage of the Eastern Front in 1943. I think we'll do one more episode on the fighting in eastern Ukraine in late 1943, then we'll be able to shift our gaze back over to the Mediterranean and Pacific. So anyway, let's begin episode 36, Siege. Ah, have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget. people in Leningrad went about their usual tasks in the freezing night, inured to the sounds of not-so-distant artillery duels. Something unusual happened that cold winter night, though. Red, white, and blue rockets screeched overhead. They were a signal. The siege had been lifted after 872 days. In June of 1941, when Barbarossa was in its early days and the Red Army was more a mass of conscripts than a professional army, the men of Army Group North were pushing relentlessly toward the Gulf of Finland and the former Tsarist capital. Leningrad, formerly and again St. Petersburg, was one of the Soviet Union's largest cities, with a population of two and a half million, and was by no means self-sufficient. But it was a proud city, so rather than evacuate and prepare for siege, people returned to the city to prepare its defense. Unfortunately, this would only increase the number of mouths to feed once the city was encircled. In September, as the Ostir closed in, Leningrad was by no means prepared for the siege. The city's food stocks had been accounted for on August 27th, and they were found to be woefully inadequate. There were 17 days supply flour, 29 days of cereals, 16 days of raw fish, 25 days of meat, 28 days of butter, and 22 days worth of dried fish. At best, the city could hold out for a month at full rations. Discovering their reserves were so low, the leadership, principally Andrei Zadanov, requested an emergency food supply from Moscow. Forty-five days' worth of rations were dispatched, essentially doubling the city's supply. In addition, rations were reduced for everyone. Though supplies were low, they were enough to buy the city time. Then the Germans bombed the Badaya's storehouses. 
For reasons unclear, nearly all of Leningrad's food supply was stored in one location. Perhaps, if that location had been an underground bunker, this may have been okay, but all of the food was kept in a four-acre warehouse district constructed entirely of wood. When the Germans hit the warehouses with incendiary bombs, they burst into flames, along with everything inside. The only thing that could be salvaged was the sugar, which melted into the cellars and would later be dug up during the siege. Zadanov was blamed for this mistake. He also probably deserves some blame for not having the forethought to evacuate the city during the summer. The only real sound decision he made was to evacuate the 400,000 children from the city in June, saving them from the horrors that were to come, and reducing the number of mouths to feed along the way. Of course, as I mentioned back in episode 13, many of them succumbed to German strafing runs on their convoys to escape. Then, on September 8, 1941, the Wehrmacht reached Lake Ladoga, and the city's land connection to the rest of the Soviet Union was severed. The gates were shut, and the city would now have to find a way to survive. Thankfully, when Dmitry M. Pavlov was flown in to organize the administration of the city. Pavlov was a genius bureaucrat, and somehow found a way to make the city's meager rations last. After learning of the desperate food situation, Pavlov took to accounting for every mouth he had to feed. Within the city, there were 2.5 million civilians, but another 300,000 were in the countryside surrounding the city that got encircled with them. In addition, there were 500,000 soldiers tasked with actually defending the perimeter. All told, he had over 3 million people he had to find food for. Until a land bridge could be opened with mainland Russia, he would have to find a way to make do with aerial supply. Unfortunately, as with all of the other aerial resupply missions we've discussed so far, the supplies brought in this way were completely inadequate. He had to find another way. In September and October, it was still too warm, but around November, Lake Ladoga would begin to freeze, and by the end of the year, the ice should be thick enough for trucks to pass over it. Until then, though, there was little choice but to persevere. The chief means of determining ration allotment was through ration cards. These immediately became the most valuable item any person possessed. Working adults received the most food, followed by non-working adults, followed by children. It was a crude system. Working adults burned the most calories, not just in factories, but also in all manner of tasks throughout the city, from cleaning out rubble, to digging defenses, to scavenging firewood. This meant that, despite receiving the most food, they were often the quickest to starve. Non-working adults were generally bedridden, and thus consumed very few calories. Children also suffered, though, as a child of five received the same ration as a 16-year-old who desperately needs calories and nutrients to grow. In the early days of the siege, people used whatever tricks they could to get more ration cards. Initially, people would just ask for replacements, but when the number of replacement cards being issued skyrocketed, Pavlov decreed that replacements could only be issued if you had incontrovertible proof that your original had been destroyed. Something terribly difficult to produce. He then decreed that cards had to be renewed every month, which had the effect of making forgeries far less useful, and meant people could not keep using a dead neighbor or relative's card for themselves. At one point in October, Pavlov even convinced Zhukov to demand that all ration cards be reissued within three days, just to reset the system. These measures were harsh. Losing a ration card was essentially a death sentence if lost early in the month, but it was necessary to prevent the city from running out of food. 
Not that the food was any good. All of the good food was eaten first, leaving behind only that which was edible in the academic sense, and that it could yield calories. In the fall, before the weather got really cold, foraging parties went into the surrounding countryside and harvested all the potatoes and oats they could find. Next, breweries were closed, so their malt and barley could be taken for food. Horses were slaughtered for their meat and to reduce their food consumption. A few were kept alive to pull sleds, but most perished. After the real food was eaten, which only took about a month, all that was left was bread. If you are picturing a nice, warm baguette, that is not what Leningraders were eating. Leningrad bread was made from whatever could be lumped together and baked. The flour had cottonseed oil cakes mixed in, making the bread dense and hard. The meager ration of nearly inedible bread was supplemented by whatever people could find that might produce calories. Leather was boiled and eaten. Cats, dogs, rats, and pigeons disappeared from the streets, and even wall plaster was consumed. Oftentimes, completely inedible things were eaten just as a way to fill stomachs. The issued bread oftentimes was stuffed with filler just to make the ration stretch, not to mention people eating paper and wood pulp simply because it was organic and thus might yield some tiny nourishment. This, of course, led to malnutrition and other starvation-related diseases, as well as just plain old poisoning, as people ate residue of industrial chemicals used to manufacture whatever thing they had turned into food. By the end of November, starvation gripped the city. As many as 3,000 people died a day from privation and German bombardment. And the bodies began to pile up. The residents of the city collected and buried what bodies they could, but mostly people were too weak and exhausted to do much. If someone died in bed, they would simply stay there. The freezing temperatures meant that the bodies would simply freeze too, so decomposition wouldn't begin, at least not until the spring thaw. Since September 8th, the city had been encircled in a ring of steel, though not for lack of trying to break the siege. Zhukov had tried to penetrate German lines twice in September, and Marshal Voroshilov would try a third time on October 20th. Though at this point, the rail hub at Tikvin was still in Soviet hands. Leningrad itself was besieged, but supplies could still be brought up by rail to Tikvin, only 100 miles east by southeast from the city, then moved up to the shore of Lake Ladoga, then carried the remaining distance over water or ice. Unfortunately, the rail hub fell into German hands on November 8th. The nearest rail hub was now out of reach, and supplies had to travel the final distance to the shores of the lake via automobile. The isthmus upon which St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad, sits, is in the midst of a system of lakes and seas formed during the last glacial maximum, about 17,000 years ago. In fact, this system of lakes and seas including the Gulf of Finland, Lake Ladoga itself, Lake Onega, Lake Pipus to the northwest, and the series of small lakes in Finland, all formed in a process very similar to the American Great Lakes and the Finger Lakes of upstate New York. And just to get down a small rabbit hole of geography and geology, glaciation essentially created the entire West Russian geography. The lakes of the far north were formed directly by glaciation, but the massive river system that determined so much of the eastern front's maneuvers were altered and shaped by this most recent period of glaciation as well. Anyway, after November 8, 1941, the Soviets had to find a way to resupply the city, and the only route available to them was the ice road. Unfortunately, the lake was still not iced over, and likely would not be sufficiently frozen until December, or even January, depending on the weather. 
The unusually cold winter that had until this point been a curse was now a blessing, however. Thanks to the excessively cold temperatures, the ice was thickening faster than usual. When aerial reconnaissance was conducted on November 10th, the ice was beginning to form on the southern shore, but the interior of the lake was still liquid. The supplies would have to hold out longer. On the 15th, however, a cold arctic wind began to blow from the north, and the already frigid temperatures began to fall even lower, down to negative 9 Fahrenheit and lower. By November 17th, the ice was thick enough for a man to stand on, and on November 19th, Shadanov decreed that the ice road must be opened. There were two days' worth of supplies remaining in the city. The ice still wasn't thick enough for trucks, so the transportation element dispatched to the town of Kabona, about 30 miles across the narrow southern end of the lake, traveled by horse-drawn sled. The first trip was a hair-raising venture. The horses were famished and could hardly make the journey across the ice. If there was no feed at the other end, they would certainly perish. 350 drivers departed Leningrad on November 19th. At the same time, a land route had to be carved out of the virgin forest on the far side of the lake, since the rail hub at Tikvin was unavailable. Workers hacked and sawed down the trees and leveled the frozen ground for over a hundred miles to connect Zabori to Kabona. Somehow, they managed to establish a vehicle route through the wilderness to bypass the captured rail station and bring supplies to Kabona, but their work would not be completed until December 5th. Until then, the horse-drawn caravan would have to do the major lifts of what supplies were already prepared for them. In the early morning of November 20th, the caravan that had left the previous day returned, filled to the brim with supplies. This hardly made a dent in the city's supply shortage, however. The caravan would have to set out again almost immediately to pick up more. Until trucks could complete the journey through the forest, the horse-drawn caravan would have to keep working, almost around the clock, to prevent the city from starving for another one or two days. Eventually, the new road did open, and trucks were able to drive all the way from Leningrad to Novoya Ladoga and onto the rail station at Zabori. It was a long trip, though, and could take anywhere from 10 days to almost 3 weeks, depending on the weather. Additionally, the ice wasn't necessarily thick enough for vehicle traffic along the entire length of the ice road, and 40 trucks were lost to the lake in the first week. Gradually, however, the ice would thicken, and the journey would get somewhat safer. Of course, they were still easy targets for the Luftwaffe. At the same time, the Red Army was fighting to relieve the pressure on the city as much as possible. On December 5, 1942, an offensive was launched to recapture Tikvin and shorten the supply line to Leningrad. The Soviet 4th and 54th Armies fought through six-foot-deep snowdrifts and sub-zero temperatures to retake the town, with KV tanks manufactured in Leningrad and moved over the ice managed to retake it from the Wehrmacht after three days. Despite this small victory, the city was still perilously close to the edge, and things would reach their nadir at the end of January 1942. With no fuel left, the city ground to a halt. Without fuel, there was no electricity, meaning there was no heat, and no way to keep the pumps running, meaning there was no water. To alleviate this, working parties were sent to the frozen Neva River to cut holes in the ice, and lower buckets to retrieve water so the bakeries could keep making food. Other working parties were sent out into the surrounding hinterland to collect firewood to keep the kilns going. The countryside was quickly scraped of easily attainable wood, however, and soon the population turned to the city itself. Any structure made of wood that was not absolutely essential 
was torn down and burned. Normally, the city required 120 trainloads a day of wood to be delivered to keep the city heated. Now they were lucky to get the equivalent of four a day. Worst of all, though, was the cannibalism. With so little food and so much dead meat lying around, it was bound to happen. First, people ate horses, then mice and pigeons, and eventually their pets. But before long, all of those ran out. It was too easy to slip into a neighbor's apartment that had died and slice off a piece of thigh or boil their bones in a soup. Who would know? People were dying left and right from privation and bombardment. What was one more missing body? Soon, a small black market formed for human meat. Men were found selling meat pies of unknown providence, and was better not to ask questions. Sometimes, cleanly severed heads were found with no bodies. One did not have to search too long before the solution was found. Cannibals. You could always tell, though, who had let go of their revulsion, because they were the few who looked healthy. The rest of the population was skinny, gaunt, and exhausted. But the cannibals retained some color in their skin, they had more energy, and their bones were not so visible. Some even said the cannibals preferred children, because their meat wasn't so tough. After the recapture of Tikvin, the Red Army continued to try to relieve the siege, but couldn't break through. The city's defenders attempted to break out several times, but in each instance, one unable to overcome the snowdrifts, the Germans' defenses, and their own exhaustion. Several more offenses were attempted from outside the siege to break the German lines, but the Red Army of early 1942 was still the ramshackle conscript army of its early days, and couldn't break the strength of the Teutonic legions. The newly opened ice road served not only as a lifeline for getting desperately needed supplies into the city, but also as a means to get people out of it. In January of 1942, Zadanov ordered that non-essential civilians be evacuated from the city to save on food consumption. Between January 22nd and April 15th, when the ice road became too thin, 500,000 people were evacuated, significantly reducing the strain on the city's supplies. With the onset of the spring came the need to clean the city. During the months of frigid cold and mass starvation, the population was not concerned with maintenance, only with survival. So when spring came around, the city was in a dire state. The rubble of homes looted for wood was strewn about. The common cafeterias were filthy, and most of the cookingware hadn't been washed properly due to a shortage of heat and hot water. And worst of all, the bodies of men and horses were strewn about. All of these had to be cleaned. Beginning on May 15th, the population was ordered into the streets to begin clearing this rubble, and they spent weeks doing it. By June 1st, their work was complete, though. With the spring, also arrived a new military commander, one Lieutenant General Leonid Gavrov. He had Leningrad transformed into a military city and further streamlined its population. He made the decision that should have been made a year earlier, in July, that the city should maintain a population only necessary for its defense, about 800,000. A year earlier, it would have been a massive feat to reduce Leningrad's population that much. But after a winter of suffering, it was now a simpler task. Over a million Leningraders had died since the beginning of the siege, in addition to the 500,000 that had already been evacuated. So only about 300,000 volunteers had to be found to get the population down to the desired level. And volunteers were plentiful. No one wanted to live through another winter, and the German army was still making gains across Russia. 
there was no guarantee the city would hold out. September 1942 brought frightening indications that the Germans were threatening another thrust toward the city. 21 infantry and one armored division were massed south and west of the city, presaging an offensive. Stalin, in an effort to hold off collapse, ordered a surplus of small arms shipped to the city, surreptitiously packed into cars labeled food and fuel. Tanks were shipped in as well, on flat cars and covered in hay, to disguise them from the reaving Luftwaffe. He also called for a spoiling attack to disrupt the expected offensive. On September 6th, the Red Army launched its spoiling attack, with the Leningrad garrison attempting to cross the Neva River. The battle lasted a month, but by early October, it had run out of steam. The Leningrad garrison under Gavrov withdrew north of the Neva, and the Volkov front called off their spoiling attack. It hadn't been an utter failure, however. German combat power in the region was severely curtailed, and the city was once again safe from further German advances. As soon as the fall spoiling attack ended, Gavrov was back at his headquarters planning a winter counteroffensive. This time, the objective was Schlisselberg, the rail junction southeast of Leningrad, and the key to opening up regular supply lines. Again, the Leningrad garrison would drive south against the Neva River, and the Volkov front would push from the east in an attempt to link up with Gavarov's men and break the siege. Initially, the offensive was set to begin on, a, on December 27th, but because the ice was not yet thick enough, had to be delayed until January 12th, 1943. The operation was codenamed Iskra, or Spark, named for Lenin's revolutionary newspaper that had helped pave the way for the revolution. This time, the offensive was successful. The Leningrad garrison crossed the Neva and drove the Germans back on the other side. Simultaneously, the Volkov front was pushing west, and within two days, the two fronts were separated by only three miles. On January 17th, Gavrov ordered his men to close the gap and unite the lines. On the morning of the 18th, the Germans attempted a counterattack to send the Russians back, but it failed, and the Leningrad front and the Volkov front met one another. This was a momentous occasion. After more than 500 days, it appeared the siege was lifted. Spontaneous celebrations were had across the city, but they were premature. The next morning, the residents of the city found the Germans were still just outside the gates, still lobbing shells into the streets, and the Luftwaffe was still overhead. The advances did allow the Schlüsselberg station to be reopened, however, and for regular train service to the city to begin again. Though the Ostier still had its hand around Leningrad's throat, the city could at least breathe again. The railway was open, but it was incredibly dangerous to traverse. Trains were hit just as often as they made it through unscathed, and the Germans cut the rail lines somewhere along its course every day, so it constantly had to be repaired, though they would never again cut it off completely. The city's survival would remain on a knife's edge for most of the rest of the year. The Wehrmacht was perilously close and still threatened the city, but more supplies were getting through, including spam, sugar, and other American foodstuffs. That is until the Battle of Kursk. Once the summer fighting of 1943 had concluded, the people of Leningrad began to loosen up a little bit. The Germans were finally being pushed back. Hopefully the siege would soon be completely lifted, soon being a relative term in a siege that lasted more than 600 days already. Additionally, Massive amounts of materiel and manpower began arriving at the Leningrad and Volkov fronts 
during the summer in preparation for a breakout offensive. Between the two fronts, there would be as many as 1,400 tanks and 1.2 million soldiers amassed for the winter offensive. On the 867th day of the siege, January 14, 1944, at 9.30 in the morning, Soviet artillery began thundering and artillery shells and rockets began crashing into German lines. Following a stereotypically massive Soviet bombardment, the Red Army surged forward, finally with a numerical and material advantage. Unseasonably warm weather meant the attack advanced slowly for the first two days, but by the third day, the temperature fell precipitously and the advance could really pick up speed. Despite slow going at first, the Red Army offensive was making ground as the Germans gave way before them. The German commander, von Kuchler, had determined that an orderly withdrawal was the best way to preserve his combat power, and thus he removed himself to Latvia and Estonia. On January 27, 1944, the Wehrmacht withdrew far enough as to no longer threaten Leningrad, and the city was free again. It had endured 880 days of siege. It had been the largest and longest siege in modern history. Between 1.3 and 1.5 million people died inside the city over the course of those two and a half years. But the city had held on. At times, only by a hair. But it never capitulated. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.